Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today, we'll get a little metal. We'll get a little new metal, a little heavy. Metal. Little, little metally, <laughs> a little metallurgic, <laughs> a little, little alchemy. No, we're, we're going to be talking. A little rock. <laughs> Little rock. We'll be talking about Brutal Legend, you know, the, the Jack Black game, as many call it, uh, which is a fantastic little fun creation from Double Fine that did okay. We'll say that. I mean, this game, it, it came out, but it had been planned for, uh, it came out in 2009, but it had been planned for a very, very long time. And it came out in a time where metal in its peak had long passed. So it was really like an interesting injection into the video game industry and kind of like a, I think a cool little game and maybe an introduction for some people into the music of old. I would agree. And and it's one of those that was a, you know, pet project or a passion project from Tim Schaefer that finally came to fruition and had a rocky, you know, rough start even just from its inception. I mean, you know, they had talked about who they wanted to cast, a couple litigation lawsuit things that have happened. So, I mean, there was, there's definitely a lot of cool content behind the production of the game and possibly seeing something that came later. Yeah, absolutely, man. Let's get into it. Brutal Legend is an action-adventure video game with real-time strategy game elements created by Double Fine and published by EA for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. It was released on Rocktober 13th, 2009. Set in a universe somewhere between Lord of the Rings and Spinal Tap, it's a fresh take on the action-driving genre, which in this case is full of imitation cover bands, demons intent on enslaving humanity, and of course, heavy metal tunes. Featuring the talents of comedian actor and musician Jack Black as super roadie Eddie Riggs, as well as cameos by some of the biggest names in metal music. It's a wild ride in the belly of the beast that is not to be missed by gamers and metalheads alike. And if you're both a hashtag true gamer and metalhead, what else could you ask for? What more I'm, could you really ask for? I assume this is the only game in your collection. <laughs> I assume as a true gamer and as a metalhead, yes, this is the only game you have and you've owned every single edition of it. <laughs> what more could you ask for? Let's talk about Double Fine. Double Fine, to me, is a studio that I really hold close to the heart. Uh, they've created some of my favorite games early on and still produce some, some really, really amazing content. Double Fine Productions was founded in June 2000 by longtime LucasArts designer Tim Schaefer, 
best known for his work at the time on games such as Grim Fandango, The Secret of Monkey Island, Full Throttle, and Day of the Tentacle. The goal of the studio was simple. Create games that were slightly different than what everyone else was making. The studio was first located in an old clog shop in San Francisco, California. Schaefer, along with programmers David Dixon and Jonathan Menzies, started working on demos for what would become Psychonauts. The game took five years to develop, putting the studio through months of 20-plus hour days. It was finally released on PC, PlayStation 2, and Xbox April 19th, 2005. The game was praised by gamers and journalists alike, but it simply did not sell as much as the studio and publisher Majesco Sales had hoped for. Double Fine would not linger over this project for long and quickly started work on their next project, Brutal Legend. And developing Brutal Legend, I mean, it was a game that Schaefer had thought about making since 1990. A couple of years later, Schaefer met one of the roadies for Megadeth, Tony, who told him numerous stories from the rock star world with a getting it done perspective. Tony inspired Schaefer to create the character Hoagie in Day of the Tentacle. This character stuck with Schaefer. He loved the idea of a character that can always get things done. He wanted to make a game revolving around a roadie who lived out a fantasy inspired by lyrics from heavy metal bands as well as album covers from those bands. This roadie would be nothing short of a hero. Schaefer knew he wanted to eventually create this game, and he always knew he would call it Brutal Legend, and a lot of the lore from the game would be inspired by Norse mythology. Again, going back to, I guess, more Schaefer than Double Fine, you know, I grew up, I don't know if you really played the Day of the Tentacle or Secrets of Monkey Island, those point-and-click adventures. Man, that was my jam, and I'm actually playing through Day of the Tentacle again. And those were fantastic works, especially from LucasArts. Again, LucasArts kind of started that realm and then eventually built their way to doing a lot of their Star Wars IPs. But it was such a fun time of clicking around on your, your giant, giant CRT-type monitor and just, uh, just having some fun. So it's, it's cool to see, like, he had this an idea forever. You know, as a designer, he's like, I'm going to do this eventually, and it will happen. Just, you know, 20 years later. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he didn't think it was going to be that much later, but you do what you got to do. Yeah. But fast forward to 2004, Schaefer and the rest of the team were ready to bring his brutal legend to life. The main four inspirations for the art were heavy metal album covers, fantasy artist Frank Vazetta, Hot Rods, and Tim Schaefer himself. They did not want to create another gray and brown game. Art for metal album covers is teeming with vast colors, telling grandiose stories, you know, of, of battles or demons, you know, just really, really intricate details in the artwork that he really wanted to bring to life. And they wanted the world of Brutal Legend to reflect this. Additionally, the studio established the iconic look for character designs during his time. Strong silhouettes with exaggerated yet simplified features. They also had to make surfaces on the game believable so publishers could see how good the game will look on those current-gen consoles. According to art director Scott Campbell, designing the likeness of the celebrities in the game was the more difficult art-related task he worked on, due to the pressure of uh, not overstylizing them and, you know, making them real to life. We had talked about this, you know, we're going to talk about Ozzy Osbourne is in the game, and he's Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, I think he did a really great job. I mean, they did not look totally out of place just a little bit of you know flair to make you separate the artist from the video game mm -hmm. but it's Ozzy Osbourne's face it's undeniable and um I think they did a really good job with that stuff 
There was so much concept art created that art director Lee Petty stated that there was a metric ass ton of concept art, so much so that it would not fit in three games. Luckily, creating factions in the game was an excellent way to use as much of the art as possible and distribute it throughout the game. Additionally, the world of Brutal Legend was going to be open to the player, encouraging them to explore as many areas as possible, allowing the art team to implement as much of what they created as possible into the world. Something really interesting and you see in a lot of um, in metal and 80s album covers in general is Chrome. Mm-hmm. And Chrome was something that the studio took very, very seriously. At first, the Chrome in the game resembled Chrome in real life. But after they looked at album art from 80s metal bands that heavily featured it, the studio realized it looked more as if it were created by an airbrush. It, it didn't exactly resemble real life Chrome. And so from there, they changed the Chrome shader, making it heavy metal chrome and you can tell that inspiration because when you first start making it you're like okay let's do chrome it's got this sheen to it but it's it's kind of dull in a way that's real life but like oh no 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 they went like that full hard airbrush like streaks along it like just looking really cool and and in a way i guess badass as they did with those covers and they kind of understood that that going into it like okay let's pull back a little bit let's just lay out every album cover from Judas Priest and what do they look like? You know, what can we infer from all these different covers? And luckily they did this because the art style could take on that idea of it. The album covers from that era, just like the cars and stuff, almost have like a cartoony look to them. Mm -hmm. I think of like a... It's not this, but it's kind of this, like a Who Frame Roger Rabbit kind of deal where it's just a blend between the cartoon world and the real world. So much touching up on those photos to just make them look um, kind of cooler, but a little bit less realistic. You know what I mean? Exactly. It takes on that idea of almost D&D, like Dungeons and Dragons to it, to a lot of those covers and just that inspiration of the worlds. And so taking that art, it honestly really made sense. Now, what didn't make sense, I guess, to me, and I think a lot of fans, was kind of the beginning of putting RTS elements in the game. So if you guys aren't familiar, the first part of it is like a hack and slash. You get to drive your hot rod around. Later, you join with those factions that Derek was talking about that you kind of command. Very similar to Overlord in a way where you have like minions that go around that do your bidding, fight for you, and it's there. Production of the game started in 2005, starting with the multiplayer. This took 16 months to complete. Afterwards, they sent a full playable Ironhead versus Tainted Coil skirmish match to the publishers. That's two of the factions. That's when work started on the single-player campaign. The game was going to be a real-time strategy title inspired by the game Herzog's Way, but it evolved over time, keeping some of those RTS elements in the campaign. This change from strictly RTS to a more action-adventure game took the game's 2.5 gigabytes of content and expanded it into a massive 9 gigabytes by the end of development. Listen, kids. Ooh. Listen, kids. With your, call, with your Call of Duties of 200 gigs back then, <laughs> this was big. F- Yo, man. This game was taking half my Xbox 360 hard drive. My, it was nuts. My external 20 gig, this is what I had to deal with. Like, I was popping external hard drives back and forth nonstop. It's what we had to do to Insanity. survive. Insanity. 
<laughs> so, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you like the game, those elements were in there. But far and away, the thing that makes this game Brutal Legend is Eddie Riggs, voiced by Jack Black. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Without Jack Black, I think this game, to be honest, I, I think it bombs. Jack Black is so integral to this. And as the studio was creating Eddie Riggs, they originally made him look like an old grizzled man resembling Lemmy from Motorhead. Schaefer suggested that Riggs act more like Jack Black's character in School of Rock, someone who's enthusiastic and loves rock and metal. They slowly started making Riggs look more and more like Jack Black himself. When it came time to start thinking about who would voice Riggs, someone suggested to Schaefer, why not get the guy we base the art on, Jack Black? Schaefer shot this idea down because he thought they'd never get Jack Black to do a video game. They even considered for a short time finding a Jack Black impersonator. But the more he thought about it, the more he thought it could be a possibility. After all, Jack Black was a fan of Psychonauts. He's also played through Mass Effect several times. So the gaming pedigree was there. I want to think that in a meeting they're talking about this and Schaefer's just been stalking Jack Black and be like, dude, he's played through Mass Effect a couple of times. Like, he is a hashtag true gamer. So we're going to have to get his true gaming chops up in here because he will love this. As long as we just have some love scenes in here and we have a shepherd somewhere in the game, he's going to love it. <laughs> Didn't happen. That's my, in, my interpretation of it, but that's, that's what I see in my heart as happening. Yeah, yeah, very well could be. And as a hashtag true gamer and hashtag metalhead, I'm sure that Jack Black has given all his Mass Effect games up, all of Psychonauts. He doesn't care about that stuff anymore. It's just Brutal Legend. Just, it's the only game he owns. Just I'm Brutal sure. Legend. So Schaefer was able to get a meeting with Jack Black, but he would only meet with Schaefer alone. The meeting was at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles. Schaefer prepared all the concept art created for the game by the pool. So he just like, you know, laid it out. Very nice. Very, very classy. When Jack Black arrived. <laughs> very, very distinguished. Yeah. When Jack Black arrived, he simply looked at the artwork and quickly agreed to be part of the project. When Schaefer started writing the dialogue, he did so with Jack Black in mind. Makes sense. Jack Black was also given free reign to take liberties with this dialogue. He had over 30,000 lines of dialogue for the game, and each one was done multiple times to make sure he got it just right for each take. Sometimes he would do joke takes, and a lot of the times, those were the lines used in the game. I mean, if you guys know Jack Black at all, his joke takes are just Jack Black takes, <laughs> and I think it fits the character just so much better. Jack Black was fully dedicated to this character. Sometimes the studio would just show him gameplay footage and he would create lines for the scenes in the spot. And during those recording sessions, as Jack Black does, he would just constantly be singing whatever song was stuck in his head in between takes. Again, if you've seen Jack Black in anything, this is just Jack Black. Jack Black was born to play this role of Eddie Ray. I mean, really, with them writing to School of Rock very early on, it makes sense that it just, it really, it was like a puzzle, like a puzzle piece. It was the last piece, the perfect piece to just kind of fall in and, and make everything make sense. Now you can start building the rest of the puzzle out. 
you know, this was the one piece that you were looking for. Yeah. The the end of the edges. The end of the edges. I don't know what I'm saying. The last Jables piece. <laughs> the last the last Jable. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Hey, Tenacious D three, the last Jable. And then one of the other things they did too was they put his eyebrow movements in there too, right? Yeah, so animators would watch videos of Jack Black reading and performing the lines written for him. From there, they would animate Riggs with some of Jack Black's iconic features, like his eyebrow movements. Riggs was more and more becoming Jack Black, or was Jack Black becoming more Riggs? Yeah, I think it's probably the former, but <laughs> still really, it, it adds so much entertainment value to these scenes. Mm-hmm. And I loved, I mean, Jack Black's hysterical. I love Jack Black. I've seen Tenacious D. School of Rock was, I used to, when I first started learning guitar, I watched School of Rock like all the time. That was my dream. That one day my teacher just wasn't going to be there and someone was going to come in and teach me how to shred and they were going to be amazing. I mean, having Jack Black in this game just fits the mold so well. Mm -hmm. I can't emphasize that enough. But in addition to Jack Black, they had to bring in metal legends. And the game features several heavy metal celebrities. Even though Schaefer has stated that they were all extremely easy to work with, and all of the humor in the game, getting a hold of them was sometimes the hardest part of the process. Typically, there was a laundry list of lawyers to get through before ever even speaking to them. Singer Ronnie James Dio recorded dialogue for his character, Deviculous. As the character grew, however, Schaefer has stated that he felt Dio was not a good fit for the character and ultimately parted ways with Dio's involvement in the game. However, Schaefer has also stated that the decision was not up to him and that things were complicated due to licensing issues. After Dio departed from the project, his character was replaced with actor Tim Curry. Bassist and singer Lemmy Kilmister was rather quiet at first before the recording sessions for his character Killmaster. Before recording, Schaefer and the rest of the team hung out with Lemmy, and after discussing medieval battles, he opened up, making the recording process extremely smooth. Schaefer even learned that Lemmy was a gamer, hashtag true gamer, and genuinely liked Star Fox. Listen, when you know someone's a hashtag gamer, you got that bond. Star Fox is such a random one for him to, to really enjoy. Star Fox is one of those games that I, I love Star Fox 64. I'm just really surprised of all the games that them to connect on. Lemmy's like, yeah, dude, Star Fox. That's the one. Derek, don't hashtag gamer shame. Let, let, let <laughs> me sorry. have this. No, I love Star Fox. I'm not gamer shaming. Let, I mean, now, well, let me, unfortunately, let me passed away in 2015, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that after this game came out, he got rid of all his Star Fox stuff and he just had Brutal Legend. Just had Brutal Legend. As well, those only owning Brutal Legend, we have singer Rob Halford from Judas Priest, who voices General Lion White and the Baron who was also an easy experience to work with. Schaefer was surprised to get a call from Halford before a recording session, with Halford apologizing profusely for having to tell Schaefer he would be 10 minutes late. I mean, could you imagine that? Just like a, you know, at the end of the day, every celebrity is a human, so, but you, you hold them in higher esteem. And this dude who's a legend is like, dude, I'm so sorry. Like, I was making a burrito, and I just lost track of time with it. I'm going to be there soon. You absolutely hear these horror stories of singers and bands, you know, like holding up recordings or practices and things. And so this dude who is the singer of Judas Priest decides, you know, or not decides, but 
just is a good human at the end of it all and calls this guy for a video game that is totally, I think, out of his element of things he would normally be doing and is like, man, I'm so sorry that I'm even just going to be 10 minutes late. I've heard a lot of that stuff from dudes in the metal industry that they're all the personalities and stuff that they put on just totally different from who they actually are. It's more of a release. Yeah, it's more that like character release. Again, going back to that idea, and I know a lot of people within the metal industry have talked about this, of having that release of almost that D&D experience, being able to play that character within a band and like writing the music along with that character is something that, like you said, helps them. I mean, there's plenty of metal legends who like have PhDs who do plenty of other stuff, but like the music is, is there for them and like that's their creative release. And again, they all wear this kind of facade along with it that they play up, but they're all, they're all pretty cool people. Yeah. And when it came time to record Ozzy Osbourne's lines, who plays the Guardian of Metal, it was also a great experience. Osbourne made it a point to make everyone laugh as much as he was. And during this time, Schaefer stated that he met every single one of his rock idols. Osbourne even went on to say, you know, you've made it when you're in a video game. Now I probably will learn how to play it. Hashtag true gamer, Ozzy Osbourne. Schaefer's making gamers out of all of them. (laughs) So during the start of development, the studio had two full-time testers playing through daily builds of the game and delivering feedback on current and new ideas. As the workload increased, they knew two testers were not enough. They couldn't afford to hire more testers, so one of the software engineers created an automated testing system named Robert. This system was able to test what features in the game might potentially crash Brutal Legend. Eventually, programmers were able to run the program at any time, mainly to test any risky changes in the code. One programmer even used an idle Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 to run tests 24-7. These tests were not only running multiplayer matches, but campaign playthroughs as well. And any time a crash was reported, it would send emails to the programmers. At the end of the development, the tests were conducted for a combined total of 147,000 hours. Man, I think it's amazing that you have this team create this AI robot, Robert, of course, keep his name in there, that was able to test these multiplayer matches and all these campaign run-throughs and really do all of these hours of it, which I think is crazy, and I want to get more of it. So, Double Fine, reach out to me. I'm not reaching out to you. That's the point. You reach to me and tell me about this because I want to know exactly what these like test playthroughs were. Is it just the code running, or do you have some robot that you've built? I assume it's kind of like the Rocky robot that just sits there and plays the game on a controller twice at a time and runs through this. I think it's just really neat in all seriousness that they created this to alleviate a problem or alleviate an issue that just needed a bit of critical thinking. And I'm sure that that technology now, I mean, you don't really think about, I would assume looking at a game like Brutal Legend that it's not like the most sound test wise Mm -hmm. or code wise. I mean, you know, to have that dedication and say, we need to make sure everything is as clean and good as possible. We really want this multiplayer to succeed. I mean, I don't know that many people that were big into the multiplayer of Brutal Legend, but if they wanted to be, it's nice to know that they could do all kinds of crazy stuff in there and it had been thoroughly vetted. Absolutely. So when all was said and done, there were a total of 60 people who worked on the game not counting the AIs who, I would say, put the major hours in. Listen. Oh, 
hundred percent. Schaefer and team, you did great, but um, I mean, Robert's getting the medal here. <laughs> Robert's taking this home. He's getting the gold. So when it came time for Double Fine to start pitching the game to publishers, some suggested they make the game about country or hip hop rather than metal. Many other publishers were interested in the game, but they did not know what direction Double Fine was taking with the game. Publisher Vivendi did not ask any of these questions. They saw Double Fine's vision and said, sure, let's do it. And making it about country or hip hop, I could see the appeal. It's like we talked about earlier. To, to make this like a metal game in 2008, 2009, things were not trending upward for the metal scene. Like, especially no. this metal scene. So I could see where they wanted to do country or hip hop. But there were games, you know, out there for hip hop already. There was Def Jam, all those like mm-hmm. Def Jam fighting titles, and those games were great. They had their their time in the in the light. I don't know what I'm trying to say. The the, the good they had their of it. time in the spotlight. Yeah, yeah. And you have Guitar Hero. I mean, you've got a lot of these other rhythm games coming out as well at this time that were kind of tracking on that. That had those ideas with it. I mean, eventually we get that pop star country singer game and a couple others. So they get some stuff. <laughs> So, with Vivendi on board, the game's funding was secure. But in 2008, Vivendi merged with Activision. And Activision would review all the games they inherited through the merger, and unfortunately, drop Brutal Legend. Even if Activision had not picked up the project, Double Fine was receiving calls during the merger from publishers waiting to release the game. Regardless, Schaefer stated this was a huge blow, and the only time during development he needed to go to the bar across the street to get a drink. So you know if this dude is just going about, hanging out with everybody, does all this insane crunch time through his life, and this hits. You're like, man, we've put so much time and effort and money behind this. Is this going to see the light of day? So for a two-week period, Schaefer instructed the studio to stop work on Brutal Legend and instead break into four teams, with each team creating a working prototype of a game and the other teams reviewing. This was dubbed as Amnesia Fortnite. It was meant to boost morale in the studio after losing their publisher. In these two weeks, the studio created prototypes for Custodians of the Clock, Happy Song, Love Puzzle, and Tiny Personal Ninja. There were rumors during this time MTV would take over the publishing for Brutal Legend, but they quickly squashed any rumors. Months later, EA would become the new publisher for the game. EA CEO even stated that publishing the game was a risk, but felt it would pay off. I'm not saying this is why they got the EA contact, but Double Fine pitched Brutal Legend to them with Deadly Sinners by Three Inches of Blood playing in the background. So Again, man, you get those gamers and metalheads together, it's a shoe-in. What well, wasn't so shoe-in, more like a shoe-loss. Amazing segue. Thank you. Hashtag amazing segue. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Activision was not too thrilled about EA publishing Brutal Legend and filed a lawsuit only months before the game was released in June 2009, claiming they were, in fact, the publisher, even after dropping the game. An EA spokesman compared it to, quote, a husband abandoning his family and then suing after his wife meets a better-looking guy. Activision sought to delay the release of the game and recover from their burns. (laughs) Double Fine then filed a countersuit claiming that Activision was attempting to delay the game 
due to the fact it might be a competitor against Activision's Guitar Hero franchise. And in August of 2009, both sides settled on an undisclosed agreement. Schaefer knew that Activision was never able to block the release of the game, so he was never worried about it, stating, quote, Hey, if Activision liked it, then he should have put a ring on it. Oh, great. Now Beyonce is going to sue me, too. Schaefer's got, okay, he's got, he's got the jokes. Schaefer's got the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What a throwback. That, that song was popular back then. Of course, this would not put an end to the drama between Double Fine and Activision. Shortly after the case was settled, Schaefer publicly stated that Activision CEO Bobby Kodak was a total prick. Kodak eventually responded, clarifying that he had never met Schaefer and made the decision to drop the game due to Double Fine running out of money for the game. They were behind on schedule and they had missed every milestone set. Every single one. Additionally, it just didn't look like a good game. At the time, Double Fine was asking for an additional nine months to complete it. So Activision's clapping back. In an interview with Video Game Zone, Schaefer stated, There are no hard feelings. What would be the point? It's just business. Hating a corporation is like hating a soda machine when it eats your money. Yeah, you're always going to come back. It's always something that's going to be there. And unfortunately, it's just the reality of it. So that's kind of what he's stating there. Of Like, man, you just... You just got to go with it. He's just saying it's a lifeless machine and it's, you know, that's just life. I love it. Full of my dollars. So let's jump over to <laughs> marketing. So we've, we've made it past a lot of this. We're getting it out there. How did they bring this to the masses? Even though the game was first announced in late 2007, 2009 would be the year everyone would know about the game one way or another. The promotion for the game was nothing short of a powerhouse. After EA was brought on as the publisher, they poured millions of dollars into marketing the game. There was a banner that hung on the outside of the convention center at E3 that year, promoting Brutal Legend, weighing over 500 pounds. And I looked at a picture of that thing, man, and it was huge. Oh, they, I mean, it really was. Yeah, they made sure you knew. Jack Black was also heavily involved in promoting the game, appearing on Jimmy Kimmel Live, and various other events fully dressed as Eddie Riggs. Double Fine also created the Brutal Thoughts series, Starring Jack Black, finding creative ways to promote the game, like working out for the role of Eddie Riggs and hooking up an Xbox controller to his brain so he could perform the moves of Eddie Riggs in real life. Every time Schaefer demoed the game for reporters, news spread quickly of it. Many noted it as a true-to-life heavy metal game with numerous comedic moments that many journalists laughed at while watching the demo. Schaefer, though, was warned that when he demoed the game to the German press, None of them would laugh. However, that was not the case. <laughs> so I want to know who like warned him. It's like, Germans do not laugh. <laughs> they have no joy. Yeah, it seems like a really silly... Like, I understand that there's probably a difference in culture, but uh, there's tons of, like... I mean, metal and rock in general is way more popular in Europe. I feel like it would be right up their alley. And it's such, like a, it's such like a weird stereotype of like Germans are just stoic. They will not say anything. They will go, yes, this is a game. It is good. Thank you. <laughs> like, this is, that's just weird. In October 2007, IGN received a package that was missing the sender information. In it was a portable turntable, a vinyl from Riggs Records, and a Xerox flyer that read, Since the beginning of time was written in the stone. 
that the mystery of the age of metal would surface from the unknown. As the recipient of these ancient tools within, you have the power to unlock this riddle with a simple spin. Rock must run through your veins, else solving this puzzle will be met with head pains. With primeval secrets at your fingertips. You possess the gift to propagate the fidelity from your mortal lips. Escape the clutches of convention and let yourself travel to another dimension. Find your destiny and protect your soul, but for now it is time to rock and roll. The record was a single from the fictional band Tainted Coil titled Corpse of Hope, which is an amazing title for a song. It is. I mean, because here's the thing. Corpse, dead. Hope, good. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows what's going (laughs) When the record was played backwards, the words maggots devour the corpse of hope was heard, but IGN was unable to make out anything else. At the time, IGN was unaware what this was promoting exactly. Their first thought being Tenacious D, the game. IGN called FedEx and learned that the package was shipped from Vivendi, and the studio quickly pieced together that it was a promotional piece of Brutal Legend, announced only one month earlier. And I'm glad that they found that out because. I've got to say, getting an unmarked package at your business and all you, all you see is this record, Corpse of Hope, that says maggots devour the corpse of hope, that'd be a little creepy if it wasn't so like, if it didn't have the Jack Black fingerprints all over it. Yeah, for sure. But I will say, hey, publishers, give us some more cool stuff like this. But se- send it to Alex. I mean, yeah, yeah, specifically <laughs> us, like not IGN. Just let yeah. us review it and let me backtrack FedEx and yeah. release it to the world. That's honestly what has to happen at this point. Next up, we have the 2008 Spike Video Game Awards. Brutal Legend was first announced at the VGAs with Jack Black marching on stage with a flamethrower chanting, Tim freaking Schaefer, Tim freaking Schaefer, before Schaefer was carried on stage by four women dressed as Amazonians. Rob Halford of Judas Priest would also join Schaefer and Jack Black on stage to promote the game with a trailer playing afterwards. So they, again, all you need is Jack Black. Do you want to be a part of something? And then do you just want to be yourself for a while? Because that's all the marketing we need. Next up, we have the Metal Meltdown. Say that 10 times fast. At the 2009 San Diego Comic-Con, in partnership with Vice, a metal concert was held promoting Brutal Legend, featuring Guar, Three Inches of Blood, Unholy Pink, and Keith Morris. Fans could RSVP on Vice's website for free, as long as they were 21 or older. There was also a Brutal Legend tour. Brutal Legend would be the official sponsor of a tour with Metalocalypse's Death Clock and Mastodon. During this 34-day tour, Adult Swim set up stations at each concert where fans could play Brutal Legend. Fans were also treated to a two-minute animated piece that played at each show, and they could also get their hands on posters promoting the tour and Brutal Legend. Again, this is really where you're seeing the EA money come to life, like partnering with Adult Swim, partnering with the VGAs, partnering, you know, sending a record out to IGN. I mean, that was even before EA, so Vivendi already putting some money out, so you knew that there was a lot riding behind this game even before it hit store shelves. For sure. There was also a world record set for this game. At Download Festival in 2009, 440 fans attended the EA Hub where the game was promoted. 
and they broke the Guinness World Record for most people playing air guitar at one time, air guitaring to Motorhead's Ace of Spades. Great track to uh, air guitar to. That's what I'm saying. I mean, they picked a good track for it. Uh, I think, hey, FTF Meetup, 441 of you, shall we? <laughs> Next up, we had the Demothon, Ormageddon, the cremator of the sky. The destroyer of the ancient world, the lord of all things brutal, has demanded that 666 million humans download the face-melting awesome demo of Brutal Legend, or he will give everyone swine flu. While this may seem like a good time to panic, sell all your worldly possessions and run to the hills. Fear not. Double Fine will be streaming a live demo of Demothon in support of the demo in hopes that they can meet Ormageddon's impossible demands and save your sinuses. This livestream, held by Double Fine, showcased Brutal Legend along with interviews from Double Fine employees. A live Q&A was also held, with giveaways held throughout the livestream as well. This livestream aired October 1st, 2009. We also had a classic GameStop pre-order. If fans pre-ordered the game from GameStop, they would receive a special in-game guitar the Love Giver, themed around Jack Black's band Tenacious D. The design of the guitar features Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D on the body, along with lines of a dialogue that will be played, recorded by Jack Black and Kyle Gass themselves. Additionally, fans who had pre-ordered the game would receive an exclusive Brutal Legends t-shirt and a download code for the demo. And finally, we had the Steam pre-order. In February 2013, the game was announced to arrive on PC through Steam. Anyone who pre-ordered the beta received access to the multiplayer beta and exclusive Team Fortress 2 items. The two items were the Brutal Buffon, a hat that was Eddie Riggs' mullet and sideburns for your character, and Shred Alert, a taunt where the character pulls out a V-shaped black guitar with team-colored decals and plays a quick metal riff. This act is accompanied with pyrotechnics and spotlights, finishing off with a lightning strike. So obviously a lot of promo went into this game. And it's cool. I mean, those are some neat giveaways. Anytime that the the pre-order stuff, I mean, if it gives you some kind of combination of stuff in real life and stuff in the game, I mean, that's like the perfect reason to pre-order right there. Especially if it's exclusives and not just, you get stuff early or here's a map someone will get eventually. It's kind of like, you had to be here for the pre-order. You got this really cool guitar, this really cool Team Fortress 2 items, which TF2 has done that mm. forever for that type of stuff. It's yeah. just really cool to see. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Let's talk about the gameplay. Brutal Legend is a mix of open-world, third-person action-adventure and RTS. 
But these real-time strategy elements are not present until later on in the game. And that was something I think we've touched on a little bit. It was kind of shocking. We'll get into that. Riggs mainly uses the separator, an ancient axe he finds at the beginning of the game, and his guitar Clementine for combat. Players can also use double-team attacks, utilizing their allies in special moves. Using the D-pad, the player can command their allies to attack, defend, follow them around, or migrate to a certain waypoint. HUD, HUD elements are hidden from the game as much as possible, since Schaefer felt the HUD takes him out of the game. In order to upgrade weapons or vehicles, one must complete side missions assigned to them. If they're pleased, they will grant Riggs fire tributes, which act as the game's currency towards upgrades. All of these upgrades can be done when visiting the Guardian of Metal, voiced by Ozzy Osbourne. There are several different kinds of metalheads that will help Riggs along his journey, like the Doom Metal Faction, which resemble the undead. Others, like Rhodes, carry martial speaker cabinets on their backs and create feedback to take down buildings. While driving through the open world, players can customize the Mouth of Metal radio station that plays while driving the Deuce, Riggs Hot Rod. The open world of Brutal Legend is 64 square kilometers, or 40 square miles, so the player has plenty of ground to cover and more time to perfect their perfect metal playlist. Yes, I mean, that's what I did. I was just deucing it up, you know, taking a deuce, doing the deuce, and uh, just getting my radio station perfect. That's what I did. So let's talk about, you know, we, we have a general consensus of the gameplay. It's a hack and slash that eventually builds into those RTS elements where you command your roadies, you command these different squads that you have. But what's the idea? What's the story behind this? So Eddie Riggs is a longtime roadie, arguably one of the greatest. However, he is not a fan of the band he currently works for, Cabbage Boy. As a piece of scenery starts to fall, Riggs saves one of the band members, but is crushed by it. As he bleeds onto his belt buckle, which is an amulet from Ormageddon, the stage is transformed into the beast Ormageddon. It kills the band members and transport Riggs into the world of heavy metal itself. A race of titans once roamed this world, creating everything from the music down to the hot rods. Though these titans eventually ascended into heavy metal godhood, they left the instructions behind on how to create the vehicles and instruments used to create the music. Now, humans are enslaved by demons, forcing them to excavate ancient machines from the Titans. Riggs awakens in the Temple of Ormageddon, where he finds the axe, the separator, and his guitar, which now has supernatural powers. He fights off druids in the temple and eventually meets Ophelia, who quickly learns that he is there to fight the forces of Doviculus. The pair find hieroglyphics left by the Titans and instructions on how to build a hot rod, the Deuce. The two escape and meet the leaders of the human resistance, Lars and Lita. From there, they think that Riggs is the chosen one, since he can now read the messages from the Titans. But at the end of the conversation, they don't know if he is the Savior or the Destroyer. And I want to touch on real quick that opening scene uh, with Cabbage Boy. It's like one of the funniest. It's really like the thing that obviously introduces the game because it's the opening scene. But it really shows you kind of the ride you're in for. There's little prompts that pop up where it's like the first time that Jack Black is going to curse. It asks you, do you want to allow this or do you want the bleeps? Will it be funnier with the bleeps in? So you could choose that. And then there's also an option to do gore. 
And you see the interaction that he has with Cabbage Boy, and it is one of those things where Double Fine is taking shots at new metal. Oh, yeah. Which, like, it's all these guys that are, they have crazy hairstyles, and they end up going out on stage and saying, like, I'm going to play you some metal. Who's here to hear some metal? And then they end up breaking into the super poppy song. So <laughs> it's pretty mm-hmm. entertaining. New metal is one of those things that is just so like controversial. It's hard for me to really recognize because I feel like you and I kind of grew up in that era where like Linkin Park and stuff was really popular. And yeah, but but there are a lot of traditional metalheads that just do not like new metal. And so I guess Schaefer might fall into that category, I would assume. And I think, yeah, coming into that and like knowing his like metal legends and kind of playing it up at the time that Riggs is like a true metalhead. And like you can even tell he's got like the spike jacket, that like demon belt buckle, leather and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, like you said, these other ones are more like this pop band that are kind of under the guise of metal. And so it's, it's an interesting take on it. And then I'll roll you back even further, Derek. And I want to talk to you about the title screen because I thought the title screen was really cool too and very unique because kind of talking about that who framed Roger Rabbit thing you were saying, it's kind of built into that, where Jack Black himself, you kind of know it, but you don't, goes into this record store and flips through it and eventually finds the Brutal Legend record. And that's kind of the start of the game. And you can like do all your selects, your saves, your options all on the album cover or like in the inside the album, I should say. So again, a really unique take to a start screen that could have just been like Eddie Riggs in Hell. Yeah. Or, or any of those things. But they wanted that idea that this whole thing is wrapped around those uh, album covers and, and, and takes in that, that idea of, you know, and, and what I love too, the record store they go into, it's not like a bright brand new one. It's like one of those, those hometown ones that just have crates and crates of everything. And he even goes to like the back <laughs> where he finds this one. So I, I again, a little interjection there, but I, I really love what they did to start the game off. And as Derek said, you know, starting it off with like, oh, come on, you mother, do you want to allow cursing in this game? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's such a unique start to it. And again, like Derek said, that's where you start the game off. And I think that was probably the biggest impact I think a lot of people had starting it to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I do want to play this game now. Like, this is going to be funny and fun. Let's do it. Yeah, it's those little details that just make games special, you know? It could be like any other main menu. Absolutely. But they chose to make it something unique and just tie it all in. So mm-hmm. getting back into the story, the four that have teamed up create an army, the Ironhead, to fight against General Lionwhite. Though their battle against the general is rather easy, the demon Deviculus appears and sends the army into hiding. During this, Riggs suspects Ophelia of being Deviculus's spy and leaves her behind. Ophelia casts herself into the sea of black tears, unknowingly creating a new army, the Drowning Doom, as well as her dark demon doppelganger, Sicoria. Though the army fails to defeat the Ironhead, Riggs knows that they must destroy the Black Sea of Tears in order to stop the army for good. As they travel to the sea, Riggs learns of his father, the hero known as Rignarok who traveled to the future yes. to learn the secrets of the Titans to bring it back to his time. Rignarok is a fantastic name, by the way. Absolutely. However, he never returned. Riggs eventually learns that Sikoria is his mother, who also traveled to the future 
and eventually had a child with Rignarok. Rig's demonic nature now takes hold, and since Sikoria is of no more use to Diviculus, she is reverted back to Ophelia. Riggs and Diviculus battle one-on-one while their armies go head-to-head. And in the end, Riggs is victorious, and Riggs saves Ophelia. In the end, Riggs simply wants to be a roadie, staying behind the scenes and letting everyone else take credit. He rides off into the sunset to complete more tasks, and Ophelia sheds a single black tear. It's a beautiful ending to such a, <laughs> such a beautiful story. And again, this was a fun story. It's unique in its own way. I mean, it's, it's been told, but I love the idea that, like, you know, Riggs is kind of this demigod born of these rock legends who sought the Titans. And that's why he's able to kind of come over here and kind of fulfill somewhat his father's destiny. And I guess his destiny between his mother and father for himself. You know, we're getting, we're getting deep here, but the lore <laughs> of good old brutal legend. Yeah, it's definitely a story that's been told in its, in its own unique way, but a bunch of times over and over again. And I think mm-hmm. the, the fun part about it ends up being just kind of the wordplay and obviously just letting Jack Black do his Jack Black thing. Yeah, and that's pretty much what they wanted. And to continue this story, they put out a couple pieces of DLC. Schaefer was teasing the release of a DLC months before the game was released, but never truly confirmed one. Many expected a narrative DLC, but this is not what Double Fine had in mind. Instead, the studio released several DLC map packs. First, we had the Tears of the Hextradon. This map pack includes the maps Circle of Tears and Death Fjord. It was finally released November 19th, 2009. And we had the Hammer of Infinite Fate. This DLC included three new outfits for Eddie Riggs, four paint jobs, and four upgrades for the Deuce, the maps Altar of Blood, Coil Remained, Crucible of the Titans, and the Amplified Cliffs, nine new achievements, and six effigies for Mount Rockmore. It was released December 15th, 2009. And we, we only had a little bit of cut material, at least a little bit confirmed cut material, where we're going to have the Motor Freaks faction. Double Fine started implementing this faction to the game, but later removed it due to time constraints. So not too much really cut to the public eye as far as somewhat finished concepts. But this is one that, you know, we, we did see they potentially were going to do a DLC with it. They were potentially looking at a sequel with it, but it's still up in the ether right now. And it's one of those things where I think they were able to avoid a lot of cut material just because they did create those other factions. You know, it's good that they were able to work mm-hmm. all that concept art they had into the game, or at least as, as much of it as they could. Let's talk about the multiplayer. As we said earlier, it was the very first thing that the studio worked on, and it set the standard for single-player gameplay. They had no experience in multiplayer and figured they would get the hardest task out of the way first. Overall, the campaign is built like a multiplayer tutorial. After playing halfway through the campaign, you should be able to play the multiplayer with ease. There are three different factions, the Drowning Doom, led by Ophelia, Ironhead, led by Eddie Riggs, and Tainted Coil, led by Diviculus. Up to eight players can participate in a match, but there are only two teams per match. Home bases in a match resemble stages at a metal concert, and the goal of each map is simple. Destroy the opposing team's base. Multiplayer was designed as a skirmish mode that instituted a 4 vs 4 gameplay. There are three modes in which the player can choose from. AI mode, allowing one to play against enemy AIs from a difficulty of 1 to 5. Custom matches, 
in which players can battle against one another in private battles. And these matches do not count toward career leaderboard stats, of course. And then finally, there's open matchmaking. Or I guess ranked at that time, if you want to call it that. Oh, yeah. Unlike other RTS games, your avatar can either command troops in the air or fight on the ground alongside them. To obtain resources or fans, you must perform guitar solos for them. Once they've been won over, they return to your base as resources. From there, you can convert them into troops for your army. In order to keep your fans loyal, you'll also have to create a merch booth. At any given time, there can only be up to a load cap of 40, and different troops cost more toward the cap. Basically, that entire paragraph is, yes, about this game, but I think that's also the tutorial about how to run a band. <laughs> uh, please do. Yes, please, can't, please, can't confirm. Please, go, please do guitar solos. Please set up a merch booth with these minions, fans that you have that will follow your every move. <laughs> Commands for your army are simple. Go to the waypoint, follow, attack, or defend. The same commands available in the late game campaign when RTS first elements are introduced. And this is one I know, Derek, you and I had talked about. We didn't truly play the multiplayer. I was just kind of in it for the campaign, the multiplayer. I don't want to say felt tacked on. It just wasn't an interest to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was very surprising. The RTS stuff was just such a weird shift late in the game. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that they stuck with it. Maybe they stuck with it so much because they it was the first thing that they worked on, so they kind of had it set in stone. Um, Agreed. But but I don't know too many people who would have played the multiplayer. I mean, maybe if you were like an achievement completionist or something, but I didn't find it very fun. There were... There's other RTS games that are just better because that's what they are. That's all that they mm-hmm. are. I mean, especially if you're talking like console versus PC stuff. And again, this gave me more of that Overlord vibes where you command like little imps and demons in that, very similar to this to do your tasks. But that whole game was based on it, whereas this started off as a cool hack and slash, driving the deuce around to eventually just go do that, follow me, do this. It was okay. But... Let's talk about the music. Let's talk about, honestly, a integral part of this. Obviously, it's a metal game, but it stuck with it. The Brutal Legends original soundtrack consists of original music composed by Peter McConnell and licensed music from 70 different metal-oriented bands. McConnell would create original music inspired by the metal genre and was the obvious choice for the job following his work on designer Tim Schafer's previous games, Grim Fandango, and Psychonauts. Audio director Emily Ridgway would head the department in mixing and scoring for the game's licensed music. Schaefer knew a great deal about traditional metal music prior to the game's development, but would start to pour research into subgenres such as black metal, goth, pirate metal, viking metal, and industrial metal to fully capture the essence of the genre. Schaefer originally created a list of 15 games from these sources for the audio team to use as inspiration for finding the game's musical flavor. Ridgeway and McConnell would struggle trying to find and create the correct music, however. They wanted to find a way to recreate metal music in a way that it would be embraced by both video game and metal music fans. Again, hashtag gamers, hashtag metalheads, you gotta have them in there. (laughs) During a vertical slice demo, when a small section of the game was completely finished for future reference, Ridgeway implemented Black Sabbath and Metallica as placeholder music with the intention of replacing it with original music later. 
Schaefer would look at the demo several weeks later and remark, Emily, how are you going to make the rest of the game's music sound this good? Schaefer loved the music Ridgeway implemented in the vertical slice, solidifying that idea that instead of trying to completely recreate a new image of metal music, the best way the audio team could pay homage to metal music was to use licensed music itself. Ridgeway would tell Schaefer that he'd need a list of at least 100 songs for the game to fill up as much linear space as possible. Both agreed that the music needed to have substance and credibility without making the metal genre sound cheesy. All the music chosen needed to be authentic, since the harmonies, lyrics, and melodies were all going to be vital to the creative direction of the game's development. During this process, some members of the studio visited a local record shop and asked if anyone knew anything about European metal. Luckily, one of the owners, named Alan, had an almost encyclopedic knowledge of metal. He made the studio mix CDs and metal bands and would tell them more about the bands on those CDs. I love that, that you get your own personal like concierge to the insights of metal. And you know, Alan's been sitting there, you know, just like tending the shop, selling records, talking about it. And this guy comes in, I want to know everything about European metal. And Alan's like, hold on, hold my mic stand. Let me, let me talk about this real quick. <laughs> I think that's just so cool. Like, you know, you made that dude's day. For real. I mean, people who are just that passionate about music, it's not that's why he just made those cds for them it wasn't any kind of extra work it wasn't anything that he felt like compelled to do Mm -hmm. or wanted to charge them for he just genuinely loved that kind of music yeah and and to be able to share that with others and and, because music one of those things that's so fun to share with others it's it's nerve-wracking at times when you get that aux cord and you're like oh i don't know if they're gonna like this for the car yeah but if you're making like you know the classic mixtape or a mix CD or a Spotify playlist nowadays. It's cool to be able to share what you find from other artists that influence you or influence you know what you like and be able to share that compassion. So, Alan, here's to you, my friend. The sound team went on to spend over two years finding music they could license for the game, with three employees being assigned to spend forty plus hours a week on just licensing alone. The process itself was slow and rather complicated. During several interviews since the game's release, Schaefer has stated that some unnamed artists made collecting music tough, making comments such as, quote, if you have this guy in your game, then I want double the money. And, quote, well, the drummer is fighting with the singer, and the drummer may want to license the songs, but the singer doesn't. If it was not for the help of EA, a good amount of the game's songs may not have been present in the final product. After the team had a large list of potential music for the game, Ridgeway would sit down and watch gameplay of the game, wondering what would sound cool in that area. Potential music would be spliced to fit in that place. If Schaefer liked it, then the music would stay. The catch is that the video game still needed some original music to help push and pull the licensed music transitionally. Knowing the importance of the music, McConnell would record the original music in four different studios. McConnell would play all the acoustic guitar parts of the soundtrack mixed with basic electronic instruments from his own studio. The crazier guitar parts were performed by Bill Storkson at ASFX Studio, where the orchestral mixing was also done. Mike Vanderhuel, drummer for the band Y&T, was recorded by Jory Prune at his studio. Lastly, Every track that included more than 15 seconds of orchestra 
was recorded using a live 36-piece orchestra by Leslie Ann Jones at Skywalker Ranch. All the tracks that used less than 15 seconds of orchestra relied exclusively on virtual library samples. When sketching out the original music, McConnell started with the game's visuals, which usually consisted of storyboards or gameplay. McConnell would then hear a melody and record it at a sequencer, starting from the beginning until the end in what McConnell says was like mowing a lawn. Outside of main themes, McConnell's job was to help blur the boundaries between the original music and the licensed music. All his orchestral music was based around accurate and popular conventions of the metal genre. If the player could believe that the licensed music sounded personal and more realistic in the world, they would become more attached to the game. I think that's true across the board for any game that uses licensed music. If you get it to fit the vibe and feel of it, you know, going to Borderlands and having Cage the Elephant that start, that kind of gritty, outlawy, don't care type stuff with the psychos and the bandits, like that brings you in. Look at Halo. I mean, a lot of that, I mean, obviously all original, but that draws you in. And just every other game that can use those licensing properties to mix that OG with the license, you got to do it. It does it well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, obviously, you forget about the most important one of all time, Take On Me and Saints Row 2. Ooh, you... Nothing like hitting them high notes while blasting some gangsters. You're not wrong. And also C90 uh, in some Grand Theft Auto when you're high tripping and you're falling through the sky. Oh, Shine a light. I still listen to that song. Ooh, I still listen to that song. That's a great one there too. <laughs> Michael's having his his moment. Mm-hmm. See, again, it mixes in so well because they do such good research in a lot of this stuff and can mix it in with like the voiceover work that's already happening in the game, mixed in with the you know battles or clashes that's happening around it. If you can make that fit, it it does feel like almost an original piece that's made for the game. Honestly, all these years later, and I remember that specific scene from Grand Theft Auto just because of the mute, like the whole environment, the music, the colors, everything that they did. I mean, if you can tie in those extra pieces to games, that's going to be what makes them memorable. Exactly, because you could license a song and put it in there. And if no one remembers that moment, you've now wasted a bunch of money licensing a song for things that people don't care about or don't remember. So you have to do it. And one thing that the audio team did to make sure of that was to make an effort to contact famous celebrities to try and hire them for the game. As we had said, Ozzy Osbourne, Rob Halford, Lita Ford, and Will Wheaton would also work as voice talent, with Jack Black voicing the protagonist. Black was a fan of Schaefer's previous game, Psychonauts, as well as heavy metal music in general, being so eager for the game that he offered his talents for the game before being even asked. So like when Sh- again, when Schaefer was like, here's some cool things. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Just, just put me in this, please. Like, I'll, I'll be the main guy. Don't worry about it. However, not all big names were eager to jump into the project. Iron Maiden's music was not included in the game due to a misunderstanding. The mascot of the band who appears on all of the band's album art was named Eddie, created by artist Derek Riggs. Iron Maiden felt that players would think they were directly endorsing the game since the name of the character was Eddie Riggs a combination of the mascot's name and the mascot's artist. However, right before the game was ready to ship, one of Iron Maiden's marketing representatives contacted Double Fine and told them they were interested in the project, but it was too late at that point. ACDC and Metallica's music was also not featured in the game, but this was due to licensing costs exceeding the budget, which, understandable. You know, I, they, I know that they are 
mighty high with some of that pricing. Yeah, those are those are some big boy names. Mm-hmm. Another issue with implementing all the music was the workload on the consoles themselves. The audio team would use the middleware software FMOD to better develop the game due to the program's ability to rapidly implement new ideas into the game. This would create a strong start to the development cycle while also allowing the music team to test more demanding ideas. They would go on to find many new bugs and performance issues of the software, however, due to the high amounts of stress put on it. This was also combined with a late decision to contract additional audio work that resulted in high amounts of new ambience and sound effects that needed to be added to the game. The Brutal Legends original soundtrack would go on to contain 20 original tracks for a total of 39 minutes and 20 seconds. It would also include 107 licensed songs spanning over 7 hours from 70 popular bands, ranging from Megadeth and Judas Priest to Ozzy Osbourne and King Diamond. The full soundtrack has since been released on vinyl, as well as most online music platforms. Following the release of the game, Ridgeway would learn that the audio team had a $1 million music budget for licensing. She then stated during a post-mortem at the 2011 Game Developers Conference, Had I known how high our budget was, I probably would have tried a different approach in obtaining the rights to the music. Having a $1 million budget just for obtaining musical rights is insane. She's not wrong. That is a huge budget. The Brutal Legend vinyl soundtrack, Armageddon Edition, is available, or soon to be, over at Fangamer.com for $29 with a remastered soundtrack and wrapped in brand new art from Lee Petty. Each record in this limited edition of 666 comes with a fold-out poster signed by Lee Petty and Tim Schafer. Listen, I didn't get that original one, so you know I'm gunning for this. (laughs) I need it. I hope you get it this time. Dude, here's hoping. Well, that's another story to come, but let's talk about the release versions of the game. We had the Xbox 360 version, the PlayStation 3 version, and the PC version. In a Q&A with Eurogamer, Schaefer was asked why the game was not being released on PC initially. He replied with, quote, well, it's really an action game, that when you play it, you'll see that it was meant to be on a console. However, the game, you know, over time made its way to PC. A physical collector's edition for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux was released by IndieBox in October of 2014, and the Mac OS and Linux versions of the game were made available as part of the Humble Bundle earlier in May 2013. That console comment just kind of feels like a fancy way of saying ports are hard. 100%. Listen, when you play this, <laughs> you know this is a console game. You know you can use controllers on PC. No, 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 no. Right. This is a console game. Let's wrap it up. Let's talk about what did the world think of this game? Fox News stated it was one of the most creative and funny games of 2009. Play Magazine cited it as the, quote, greatest video game ever made. That's a little bit of a stretch play, but I love it. <laughs> it was IGN's 2009 editor's choice, and Kotaku has stated it has one of the best main menus in all of video games. That I will 100% agree with. There was some misrepresentation with the game when Schaefer would demo the game for journalists and in the demo released three months before the game came out. Typically, the first mission was shown, which lacked the RTS elements of the game. When Vivendi was set to publish the game, they told Schaefer to not call it an RTS and even stated that they would refuse to acknowledge it as such if they were asked. Instead, he was told to market it as a hack and slash title. Later on, when EA picked the game up, 
They referred to it as action strategy. Schaefer feels that one reason the game didn't sell as well was because of the RTS elements in the game not being communicated with gamers before the release. Many journalists and critics were also confused by the change of genre in the middle of the game, going from an action adventure to more so an RTS. Eventually, there were rumors that Double Fine was given the go-ahead to develop a sequel to Brutal Legend after the game's release, and they had invested a great deal of development time towards this, but were later told by EA that it was canceled. Schaefer stated that the sequel would likely incorporate much of what they had to drop prior to the game's release. This game would have been three times larger than what Brutal Legend contained. The sequel would have likely included a fourth faction that was cut from the original game, which would have been the last major group the player would have to fight through, including a major boss character before the final battles with Diviculus. Schaefer further noted that at the end of the original game, Diviculus' head falls into the Sea of Black Tears, and implied that the same effect that the sea had on Ophelia could happen to Diviculus. Schaefer also had ideas for a plot using a character voiced by Ronnie James Dio, but will not likely be used due to Dio's death. I mean, I guess that makes sense. The cancellation of the sequel nearly ruined Double Fine, as they had invested all current efforts towards the title. Instead of a sequel, Double Fine began work on four smaller projects, Costume Quest, Stacking, Iron Brigade, formerly titled Trenched, and Sesame Street, Once Upon a Monster, based on prototypes they had created from Amnesia Fortnite during the development period where they had lacked a publisher. In these two-week sessions, the Double Fine team was split into four groups and each tasked with creating a small prototype game to share with the rest of the company. All four minigames were well-received internally. Upon hearing of the cancellation of the sequel, Schaefer and his team began to promote these games around and were able to obtain publishing deals for all four titles. The games will be able to take advantage of the custom game world engine and other assets they had created for Brutal Legend. The titles were considered financial successes, allowing Double Fine to recover and pursue further game development through steering away from major AAA releases. They did. Costume Quest, which actually has a sequel now, was a fantastic, goofy little game where it was like a turn-based battle game. But you were a kid at Halloween, just like fighting for like candy, but then eventually gets like darker and deeper fighting monsters. It's kind of interesting. As of 2013, Schaefer was still interested in a sequel to Brutal Legend, but would require appropriate funding and resources to make it happen as an independent developer. Since then, Double Fine launched a successful crowdfunded drive for Psychonauts 2 in December 2015, and Schaefer said that if that game does well, there is a good chance that a sequel to Brutal Legend would be possible. Tim Schaefer said June 13th during an appearance at E3 2017 that Brutal Legend will eventually get a sequel, but... We will see now that Xbox has bought Double Fine and seeing what Xbox is going to be put on that chopping block. Yeah, I, I definitely don't have hopes for a sequel. I think even if the sequel gets made, this was a game that doesn't really need a second. It's a, it's a really cool, unique piece. Uh, maybe I'm alone in feeling that way, but I, I think just one Brutal Legend is good enough, great, unique game, um, and adding a second in the... What I call this the franchise adding a second yeah adding a second in the franchise uh I think would be a mistake I think it would honestly water it down granted do what you want I mean if, if Brutal Legend 2 I think takes out a lot of those elements and and perfects the game and can bring in all these other talents 
super cool. Or like if, if Eddie Riggs went back to being a roadie, but now it's for like K-pop stars. And so now he's like going back <laughs> to Ormageddon to like revive the metal, you know, 20 years later, let's say. Might be kind of cool. Like I'm not going to doubt that game, but I don't know if Microsoft and Xbox are going to be doing that because I think right now all their eggs are in Psychonauts 2. And we're going to see if that basket can hold them or if it just dumps them all out. And if you guys don't know, Jack Black does have a quote-unquote gaming YouTube channel, uh, which is fantastic. He does about uh, 0.7% gaming on it. (laughs) However, (laughs) on March... let, Let me tell you. Look at those analytics. However, on March 1st, 2019, Jack Black did do a stream of Brutal Legend, which I did watch. And it was actually pretty interesting him like talking about the process of it and playing the game and be like, that's me. And he's honestly just a good dude. And finally, even now, Schaefer has stated that this was the most personal game he has worked on at the time and still plays Brutal Legend every year. And we had talked about that. This was a passion project since 1990 for him. Like he knew this was what he wanted to do and he poured everything out to it. And that's got to be why he's so adamant that this game get a sequel one day. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just genuinely loves it. Brutal Legend's one of those games that's proof that passion projects can turn out if you stick with them long enough. Schaefer had this entire game in mind for years and was finally able to bring it to fruition with the help of some of the greatest metal legends of all time. Albeit some of the hiccups with things such as the disliked RTS elements, the Activision lawsuit, Brutal Legend still came out on top as Double Fine's greatest selling game to date. Along with classics like Day of the Tentacle and Psychonauts, Brutal Legend is proof that Tim Schafer still has plenty of crazy ideas in his head that we'll hopefully see in future titles such as Psychonauts 2. Absolutely. I mean, he's one of those guys that when he kind of has that creativity, he sticks with it and, I mean, sticks to his guns. I mean, having multiple different publishers turn them down, bring them on, say it costs too much, say it costs too little. And he's like, dude, it's just, it's bidness is bidness. I want my game out there and uh, that's what we're going to do. And so, Derek, as always, why do we choose this? What do you think of this game? Why is this game meant to be talked about? Yeah, Brutal Legend, you know, it's one of those games, like we've talked about, where it was just this perfect pairing of music and gaming. And we saw that in games like Guitar Hero and Rock Band and things like that, that were more focused on the music aspects. This is one of those games that throughout just having like a really fun metal atmosphere is something that Mm -hmm. I still think about. I still think it's really unique. There are so many games now that the soundtracks are, I'm assuming just based on very cheap budgets. And so you get a lot of artists that aren't really big names, maybe one, maybe two, something like that. The music to me doesn't really stand out the same way unless it's, original scores kind of at this point but licensed music is lacking so i just remember this game for being fun and light and having great music throughout so it's a it's a lot of fun i think though the rts elements really turned me off of this game this is a game that i played one time i don't have any plans to play it again sometimes when we do these episodes i think 
you know, that's a game that I really need to go back and, and give another run. Sure. Yeah, yeah. This is a game that I, even after doing all this stuff and reminiscing, I just, I don't really have a massive desire to play this game again. I think if I had to rate it five out of 10 overall, if I remember right, the game kind of starts to lose some of the humor aspects around the same time that the RTS stuff comes in. So it's a lot of fun at first. Really, really cool. And then just slowly as the game goes on, I started having less fun with it. And even though all that music stuff was there, and even though Jack Black was there, and I think ultimately saved this game, I don't think it, it would have had any success without him. I It's still one of those games that, while it was fun for the time that I had it, it's not something that I, I really want to do again. Okay, I, I will say thus far out of all your reviews, this one makes a little sense because you gave it a 5 out of 10, which is a 50%, and 50% of the game was good. 50% was very confusing. So I will hesitantly allow that rating. We'll say that. It's, it's, on, it's on a sliding scale. I'm hesitant right now. So, if I, so, so really the real reason I wanted to choose this game was just the innovation that it had, like you had said, with the humor, the huge music budget, the fun hack and slash element of it, and overall, I'm not gonna say it was a generic game, but it fell into that of just like slash 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 story. If it didn't have Jack Black, Eddie Riggs as a character was just so well done, and the whole idea of taking a somewhat done story, but doing it as like this metalocalypse, this metal place of Ormageddon with all these metal legends and just telling this cool story wrapped up in one motif, I think did really, really well. Again, the game didn't do as well as EA had wanted. You know, I think Tim Schafer still obviously loves this game. This is his passion project. And it's still Double Fine's best selling currently. We'll see how Psychonauts 2 does. And we'll see how these other games do because Tim Schafer and Double Fine have really, really over the years found themselves as a cult classic studio. It's these games that perform all right for smaller games, but people latch onto it and love it. I mean, seeing that like two-headed flying fairy type thing as their logo, people see it and like, yes, this is a Double Fine production. This is something I want to play. So for that, if I had to rate it, I would start off rating it very highly um, because it is a game that all grandmothers can play because it does allow the option to bleep out bad words. And as everyone knows, grandma, grandmas don't like bad words. So grandmas get a plus in this. Um, Your grandma likes bad words. Listen, I'm talking about <laughs> all the other lacy apple pie grandmas out there. They're taking care of it. Subtract, though, the RTS elements, because if I want RTS, I'm playing Age of Empires or Age of Mythology. Really, truly silly. That's what RTS stands for in this game. So that's a minus. Multiply it by a cool guitar with lightning AoE. You love to see it. And take that out of throwing deuces while taking a deuce in the deuce. Multiply all this by three, and you have 666, which is my score for this game. The number of the double fine. Thank you very much. Research for this episode was done by Jesse Reiners, Alex Kendall, and Evan Barr. And our intro and outro tracks were composed and recorded by Evan Barr. And as always, great people. Love them. You hate them. You know them. You might have seen them at the grocery store, but who knows? 
We want to thank those who support us and who have chosen this episode, and that's our patrons. So every month, the patrons get to choose an episode, uh, and this is the one that they have chosen. And let's thank those people today. And we have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Cowan Fong Feliciano, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semechki, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier, and Mr. Two. So thank you all. And as always, Patreon is an awesome way to support us if you can. If not, there's plenty of other ways sharing our content, joining in on our Discord and all our streams. And if you haven't, please give us a follow on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Like us on Facebook. As Alex said, join that Discord. It's free to join. It's a lot of fun. And as always, catch me streaming over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. We plan the latest, greatest, or just things I want to do. And send us recommendations. Games you want to see, art you want to see, stuff like that. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or your favorite listening platform. If you haven't, please leave us a review. It helps us immensely, gives us great feedback, uh, see how we can improve, or some things that you like. And that, as always, was our coverage of Brutal Legend. Let us know what you thought. Have you played the game? Is it something fun? Or are you just here for all the mwah, beautiful heavy metal music? And with that, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.